you all would turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read for us verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. Um, Father, as we read this word, um, God, it's my tendency to think that uh, Paul is instructing Timothy to instruct someone else. Uh, And yet, uh, this is me. This is us. Uh, Father, we are those who, um, for no doing on our own, were born into an extremely wealthy place, an extremely wealthy culture, an extremely wealthy time. And and yet, uh, Paul warns in Colossians, along with Christ in the Gospels, uh, to take heed that we do not fall into covetousness. And, and the fault there with us, fathers, we compare ourselves with each other. We look around and we look at the people that are in our own strata in our own neighborhoods in our own area and and we often compare ourselves to them uh, when uh, we are a, a very very wealthy people and so greed by its nature blinds uh, so father the the message tonight isn't ultimately ultimately on greed or covetousness uh, but about us being managers of those things that you've given us so, Father, I ask that you would uh, teach us here at this point, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, so, the, the five outcomes, and we are on number four tonight, uh, we were talking today and, and I was just thinking about the illustration of a house of cards, that these things are built one upon another and you pull one out and they all fall down. So, uh, on Sunday morning we talked about intimacy with Christ. Sunday evening about the fruit of the Spirit, Uh, Monday evening last night about the gifts of the Spirit, and tonight stewardship of life. Stewardship is one of those words we don't use a whole lot. I think we should. It's a a great word. When I hear the word steward, I think about uh, probably the greatest trilogy of movies ever produced under the sun, and those are the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R. Tolkien. Peter Jackson directed them. If you haven't seen them, um, don't go to bed tonight without watching the extended cut. All three of them spend the next 14 to 16 hours of your life when you leave here. You do yourself a favor and watch all three extended cut trailers, uh, movies of The Lord of the Rings. But in the third one, The Return of the King, there is a steward there. The steward of Gondor. His name was Denethor. And in the movie, he was, he was kind of a bad guy, but he had maintained allegiance to the kingdom. He stood against Sauron um, and fell under depression. But ultimately, we know that in the story and what's going on behind it, the return of the king is Aragorn, who was the rightful king of Gondor. 
But Denethor was the steward of Gondor. So the kingdom wasn't his. He was not the king. He didn't own the land. He didn't have the royal blood in him, but he was a manager. And that's what a steward is. A steward is a manager. And so when it concerns this outcome of the Christian life, this is who we are. We are stewards of life. God is the ruler. He's the the rightful king. It's all his. But he has put us in position of managers. And so the idea for us tonight then is to give what we cannot keep, to gain what we cannot lose. And you might recognize the statement. It's on Jim Elliott's tombstone. Uh, Jim Elliott died a martyr in Ecuador in 1957, giving what he could not gain, giving what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose. And so that's the, that's the thrust then for us tonight from verses 17 through 19. And we're going to look at each one of these verses um, with three points to see the good, verse 17, to do the good, verse 18, and to give the good, verse 19. So to see the good. Now, last night I said that I wanted to roll through the first two points to get to the third one and to spend more time there. It's the opposite tonight. I didn't want you all to get comfortable. So I'm going to spend most of the time with the first point to establish a foundation for the next two. And by God's grace, it will be evenly distributed over the next hour and a half. And so, um, to see the good, for, and then you have to watch all 16 hours of Lord of the Rings when you leave here. So, to see the good, verse 17. And look what, look what Paul says here to Timothy. Now, keep in mind, this is a pastoral epistle. Uh, Paul is instructing a young pastor of how to pastor. So, he's instructing Timothy to instruct his people as a pastor. Now, what's wedged here um, is final instructions to Timothy about his character, about his perseverance, about his fight for the faith, there in verses 11 to 17. But right before that, Paul has taught also about money and wealth, but from the opposite standpoint of where he's going in verse 17. Uh, So back in verse 6, he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of this world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, so they are not rich, but they want to be. There's two errors that we can fall off on when it concerns money. So those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Important, love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Then he goes into this character um, call for Timothy. And then he comes into verse 17. So he said, there are many poor people who want. And, and they fear not getting what they don't have. And then there are others who have and fear losing what they've got. So as for the rich in this present age, verse 17, charge them not to be haughty. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And so this is the call for us to see the good. And the good there is capital G. Uh, I would remind you of Luke eighteen nineteen and this encounter that Jesus has with a man who 
calls him good, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Now, implicit in that, Jesus was identifying himself, similar to the I am statements through John's gospel when I am, and Jesus is identifying himself as God. But Jesus points to the goodness of God. There's only one who is truly good. And the reason why this is so crucial for us is because if we see other things, other people in our life as the ultimate good, we will hold on to those things as our treasure. And so he tells us not to do this. And there's a, there's a corollary. The more worthy and valuable and beautiful we see our Lord, the less we hold on to stuff. So it, it's vital that we see the good and that being God. For the rich in this present age, charge them. Don't be prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So here in verse 17, in this charge for us to see God as our rich, our richness, as our wealth, as our treasure, he says there are two, again, if, if that's the path to see God as our greatest good, then there's two ways to fall off for those who are rich. And I would submit to you that is us. No matter our income level or discrepancy between our incomes in here tonight, we are this. We are these people that Paul is instructing Timothy to instruct. And so the two places that we have to fall off, the one ditch on either side of the road, is first to be haughty. It's another word for prideful, to be arrogant, to think that ultimately the stuff that we have is because of us. And I, I quoted, I think, on Sunday morning, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and I love this verse. It is somewhat of a, of a, a banner verse in my life. And it, it says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why would you boast, be prideful, be arrogant, be cocky, as though you did not receive it? And, and you and I cannot answer that question with anything. What do we have that we did not receive? And you say, well, I worked very, very hard. And I would grant that to you. But where did you get the strength or the energy or the body to persevere in your work? You know, I went to school and I I toiled and strained for four years to get a bachelor's and then another four years for a master's and then another four to six years for a doctorate. A lot of sleepless nights, a lot of library hours, a lot of cramming, a lot of ramen noodles. And, and, and I did all of that. That was me. And I would say, where did you get the capacity to retain the kind of information that you were learning, that you were reading, to be able to continue down that path? Where did that come from? You and I have a lot less control than we think we do. And that is to say that we have no control. There are so many circumstances and and things that must have happened that that we had absolutely no control over. Paul says to those pagans in Athens in his sermon on Mars Hill, he, he calls them to an account, to an awareness of God, and he says concerning God, in him you live and move and have your being. Were it not for him, you don't exist. And so he, he, he says the one place for us to fall off on into this ditch 
is to be haughty, to be prideful concerning the things that we have. The other place to fall off is to set our hopes on riches. And he says, don't do that because they are uncertain. Hope is, is a, a key word here for us because you and I have lots of hopes, right? And, and I would say that they're, they're well and good. I hope to see the salvation of all four of my children. Uh, I, I hope that I see all four of my kids profess Jesus, grow in Jesus, love Jesus. I hope to see them marry. I, I hope to see them have children. I hope to see them have godly spouses who love God more than them. I hope to see them safe. I don't want to think about them experiencing abuse or neglect or, or harm. I, I, I hope that for my kids. I hope things for myself. And, and, and these things are well and good, but I have no guarantee. I have no guarantee. There's only one kind of hope that I have an absolute guarantee on. And it's the same hope that you have an absolute guarantee on. Turn to Romans chapter 5. I want you to look at verse 2 and following of Romans chapter 5. Through Him, this is our Lord Jesus Christ of verse 1. So through Him, this is the beginning of Romans 5.2 we have also obtained access. So through Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now there's a bookend here, and catch it with me. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now that's the one book marker. Now go on. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces, and there's that word again, hope. There's the other book in. So we rejoice in hope of God's glory. And then, in the middle, we have suffering and endurance and character that produce hope. And then he says in verse 5, And this hope, the hope for God's glory, that does all of these things, this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's only one kind of hope that will not put you to shame, that will not disappoint, that will not let you down. And so hope is faith's forward-looking posture. That, that's what hope is. We have faith in the present, but what hope is, is faith looking forward. That, that's what hope is. And so when Paul tells Timothy to charge the rich, not to be puffed up, not to be haughty, not to be prideful about the stuff that they have, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of future wealth, of their riches, but on God, is that there is no certainty. Let me give you a good example of that. Some of you may be familiar with the name uh, Ronald Wayne. Now, if you're not familiar with that name, you will be after tonight. On April the 2nd, 1976, Ronald Wayne's name was on an official document along with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak 
as the original three founders of Apple computers. Now, Steve Wozniak, the, the Woz, they, you know, he and Steve Jobs are obviously very famous, billionaires, um, very successful with Apple computers. After just a couple months, Ronald Wayne decided that he was in over his head with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and so he sold his 10% stake, 10% of Apple computers. Now, Steve Jobs had 45%. Steve Wozniak had 45%. This is 1976. They had all worked together at Atari. It's an, a, a fascinating game system. Um, <laughs> there's dots and little squares. So they had all worked together at Atari, and they formed this company. And, and later on, Ronald Wayne would say that Steve Jobs was the entrepreneur. And he said, if you wanted to have his footprint on your forehead, you would stand between him and the goal that he had for himself. And that Steve Wozniak was the inventor. You know, he was the creative inventor. Jobs was the entrepreneur. And he said, I was just out of my league. And so he sold his 10% stake on Apple computers, 1976. He sold them. 10% for $800. 800 bucks. In 2010, now this was seven years ago, and this company has done nothing but skyrocket since then, but in 2010, his 10% stake would have been worth $2.6 billion. He lived in a home in Nevada that he paid $150,000 for that he struggled to keep the lights on. So much so that he started selling things off just to, to continue to make ends meet. And he had that original document that he and Jobs and Wozniak signed. So in the year 2000, he sold the very first original contract for Apple Computer Company for $500 to a collector who sold it 11 years later for $1.6 million at auction. <laughs> and when he was told about it, do you know that the document you sold for 500 bucks went for $1.6 million at auction? He said, that's the story of my life. <laughs> oh, goodness. The uncertainty of riches, right? The uncertainty of riches. Uh, you and I are called by our Lord to worry about today and let tomorrow worry about itself. And that's what ultimately fear is. Fear, anxiety, worry is trying to live out the future before it occurs. It's us making our plans for what we are going to do tomorrow. And then worrying, having anxiety and fear about whether or not our plans are going to come to fruition. And, and, and Paul instructs Timothy to instruct us not to do that. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And that ultimately is what the, the things that we have are meant for us to do and to, to focus on, maybe a better way to say it, is that God's gifts are meant to drive us to the giver. C.S. Lewis, um, in a, a collection of essays, talks about reflections in a tool shed. And it's, it's one of my favorite um, short pieces by Lewis because it begins this way. He says, Today I was standing in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside. Through the crack at the top of a door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, 
not seeing things by it. But then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, I saw the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. And when I think about the gifts of God in your life and my life, it is as C.S. Lewis is preaching to us that these things are meant for us not to look at, but to look along. To look along the beam and to see the giver. And, and so we have to, we have to see God as our greatest good. Otherwise, we get fixated, we get obsessed with, we lock on and get distracted by the things that we've got. And so those things become all-consuming. And this is why Paul starts this last discourse on riches this way. That we would set our hope on God. He is certain. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. And so we must see the good bottom line is that if Jesus is not more valuable and beautiful and worthy to us, something else will take his place. Someone else will take his place. Now we're talking about us being stewards or managers of life. It's not just the stuff, but it is also the people that God has placed in our life. It's also the talents that he's given us. It's the time that we have. And that takes us to our second point. Look at verse 18, sorry. So now charge them not to be haughty, not to put their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18, I want to come back to that last part of verse 17, but look at verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So this is the the do good portion. So we are to see God as our greatest good, and then we are called to, to do good. And, and that's exactly what he says. And then he explains. He expounds on the doing good. When he, uh, he uses a metaphor of our wealth. So we hear wealth. And we think bank account. We think 401k. We think retirement plan. We think investments and savings. Uh, we think house and, and our equity in our, you know, in our home or our property. Like we, we hear it that way. But then... Paul sticks with riches, but he says, be rich in good works. So you are to do good. You are to be rich in the good works that you do. To be generous and to be ready to share. So, th- so we are to see the good. We are to do good. Now, I want to go back just for a second to verse the end of verse 17 where he says, That God, who we have set our hope on, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, it would be a a whole other sermon to talk about the low-lying guilt that many Christians feel for the things that they have. But here is one of the, the, I think, brightest proof texts for us to say that God gives us stuff for our enjoyment. 
that the things that we have, God has given us, that we also might enjoy them. So there are many, many Christians, not, maybe not the majority, but many, and I've, I've met many of them, who feel as though if you had a retirement plan, or you had a house that was earning equity, well, goodness, you're in sin. You need to, to get rid of that stuff. You're not trusting God. Well, here, Paul tells Timothy to tell us to enjoy. So again, much could be said on that. But the things that we have, we can enjoy them. We ought to enjoy them. We should hold them loosely. We should thank God for them, but we should also enjoy them. And it's actually a a slap at the face of the giver when we don't. So, then to do good with those things. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Look at 1 John Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, if you will, for just a minute. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Now, John instructs the church as a pastor. Uh, John writes 1 John at the, the turn, at the end of the first century. And we believe that at this time he's in his 80s. Um, writing back over a long life, um, pastoring many people and instructing a church with his last letter to them. And he says, No, by this we know love, that he, being Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is exactly what Paul says in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God in word and in deed. So we are called to do. Several years ago, when I moved to West Virginia to church plant, there was a, a church planting director Um, for a denomination that I came in contact with. And it was rare that I would sit down with this individual. He's pastoring a church now in Sutton, West Virginia. But he would always say the same thing in some context. He found a way to bring it up every time we sat down together. And he would say, when all is said and done, there's always more said than done. Over and over. I wish I'd had a dollar for every time I heard him say I could have fund the church plant for the first year. Uh, When all is said and done... There's always more said than done. And so Paul takes us from this picture of the stuff that we have to say, be wealthy in the things that you are doing, the good that you are doing. So stewardship of life is not just, now it it certainly is not less than what we do with the things that we have, but it is more than that. It's what we're doing with our life. I pastored a church before moving to Huntington uh, to church plant that the median age of the church was probably in the low 70s. A church of about um, 80 or so folks that were all uh, in their, you know, virtually all in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, 
wonderful church. They, they loved me at a time that I really needed to be loved. Todd and I had been on staff with a church in southwest Florida where um, you were dressed up if you had pants on. You know, it was, south, it was southwest Florida. So most people came in sandals and shorts, polo shirts, t-shirts. And so I came out of that immediate context and I was still very um, ignorant about the place that I was when I went to pastor this little church in Virginia that was right on the North Carolina line. And the first Sunday that we pulled into the parking lot, I had a preaching professor that gave them my name. They contacted me. They said, would you come and preach? And so we made the hour drive from the seminary there. When we left out of our seminary townhome, I had a pair of jeans with holes up and down them and then a pair of sandals and a polo shirt on. And, and Sarah looked at me. She's always the voice of reason. She said, you're going to wear that? And, and I said, you're probably right. And I went back in and I put on a pair of cargo pants um, three sizes, three sizes too large, pockets instead of holes, pockets up and down the sides. I um, still kept the sandals, still had the polo. So we pull, we drive an hour to this church and I, I pull into the parking lot and I, and I'm not kidding you. I'm not making this up. This isn't hyperbole or preacher talk. We sat there for about 10 minutes and watched every person walk into the church. And there wasn't a single boy under the age of, over the age of 12 that didn't have a suit on, coat, tie, you know, slacks, shoes. And I told Sarah, I said, when we go in there, uh, I'm just going to preach my guts out because they're never going to invite me back. And so we, we, we went into the church and most people thought that we had wandered in off the street, me. They thought she had invited me to come with her to church, but that I had wandered in off the street. And Sarah said that I, I didn't see it, but she saw it and she heard it from the people sitting behind her that when I went up to take the pulpit, that there were gasps. <gasps> because it was the first time, and people told me this later on, it was the first time that they'd ever seen sandals in the pulpit. And so uh, I, I, I wish I could keep telling you about that experience, except this. I, I thought to myself, and I experienced this with these people, is that, okay, this, this was a very elderly church. Now I'm, I'm tying this in to the things that we do. We, we steward our lives with the things that we have and also the things that we do. And, and my mind would very often go with this church, and I still think about it when I think about these wonderful saints, about Paul's instruction to another pastor in Titus, when he says, as for the older men, and as for the older women, instruct them this way. You don't have to turn, I'll read it for you. Older men are to be sober-minded. They are to be dignified. They are to be self-controlled. They are to be sound in the faith and in love and in steadfastness. And older women, and ask yourself why. Why, why would Paul instruct the older men this way? And then the older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. For the entirety of our Christian life, beginning to end, we are called to be stewards. And, and we never retire from that. There is no retirement. And, and everyone, as long as God gives us breath, has a role to play. You are called to be a steward, to be a manager of the life that God has given you and to be rich in good works. And so I simply want to challenge you before moving on from this point to ask yourself, now as we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, 
I, I would say, ask yourself, what is it that God wants to change in me? The fruit of the Spirit, as we talked about on Sunday night, has to do with virtue, with our character before the Lord. What is it that God wants to change in me? As it relates to the stewardship of life, this is the prayer, this is the question. How is it that God wants to use me? I think about this all the time with Sarah and the kids, and I, I do this so imperfectly. And God often convicts me when I ask that question, how is it that you want to use me to be a husband that brings you honor and glory in the way that I love and care for and speak to my wife? How is it that you want me to steward your children that you have given me or your grandchildren that he has given you? Now, how is it that you want me to use the finances that you have given me, that you have given me to manage, to steward? You know what the average person tithes, and it's a loose, loose use of the word tithe because tithe means tenth? Two percent, two to three percent of evangelical Protestant church members. Two to three percent. How is it that you want me to use the money that you've given me? How is it that you want me to use my time? This year, when the year ends, December 31st, at the stroke of midnight, you will have spent 8,760 hours. I really hope that you, know, you won't spend 16 of those watching Lord of the Rings as much as I, I joke. Probably not the best use of the next 16 hours of your life. But every single one of us has the same account to spend from. God gives you the next year and gives me the next year. We will have 8,760 hours to spend. God, how is it that you want me to use the talents that you've given me? Tom, treasure, talents. The three T's. I think categorically and systematically. How is it that you want me to use the talents that you've given me? And so we're all pulling from the same account to essentially say God has blessed, God has given. And what are we going to do with? Last point is to give the good. Look at verse 19. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there is this reciprocal relationship of the things that we have with the things that we give. So he tells us that we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, verse 19 is attached to the end of verse 18 when he says that we are to be generous and ready to share, that our posture is to be ready and willing to share. God presents a need to you. He does that for a reason. He presents a person to you. He does that for a reason. He gives you a gift. He does that for a reason. And so our posture, the position of our hearts is to be, I'm ready, I'm willing God, use me. Use me however you will. And then the reason for that, to be generous and ready to share, is to store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation 
for the future that we might be ready to take hold of that which is truly life. And, and only when we see what is truly life from what the world presents to us as the good life, will, be, will we be generous and ready to share. Only when we see that. that that's the reciprocal relationship. Otherwise, we're going to take hold of that which is not life. There's a, a great story that's told about the Apostle Peter. It's, it's an apocryphal story. It's, it's not in the Bible, so if you go looking, you won't find it there. But it, it's the stuff of legends, and the story goes that one day that Peter, um, along with the rest of the disciples, were called by Jesus to follow him. And Jesus comes to them and says, take up a rock for me and follow. And so they all pick up rocks, and they set out following Jesus. They know not where, and Peter picks up the smallest rock that he, he can find. He doesn't know how long he's going to be following. And then at lunchtime, they come to the edge of a lake, and Jesus says, take out your rocks. And so they all do. And he waves his hand, and he turns all the rocks into bread. Now, some disciples had a big loaf. Some had a slice. Peter had a crumb. And so he's starving. His belly's grumbling. And Jesus says, after lunch, take up a rock for me and follow and so Peter says, I'm on to your game, Jesus. And, and he tries to find the biggest boulder that he can possibly, you know, shoulder for however long they're going to be following Jesus. And they follow him until the sun is setting, until dusk. And Jesus says, take your rock and throw it in the lake. And all the disciples throw their rocks in the lake. And Peter protests. What about supper, Jesus? Aren't you going to do the same you know, party trick that you did at lunch? And Jesus says to Peter, twice over, Peter, I asked you to take up a rock for me and follow. Who did you take up the rock for both times? God has gifted each and every single one of you with time, with talent, and with treasures for him for him and so out of that we are called to give of ourselves with all of our hearts willingly readily as he calls us for his sake not for us but for him how, how radical would that flip your life and my life on its head? And the church, particular, this one, but the church, if we didn't see our Sunday school classes or our program that we came up with or our idea about the next decision, or even our understanding of service. In, in my church, every Sunday, we ask people to help out with the children. Every Sunday. We're short on volunteers. Can anybody volunteer? And I get it. I've got four of them. They're nasty. They, they don't give anything back. Right? They're, yeah. I get it. We want to be in the service. 
We want to sing. We want to participate. And, and I try to remind folks in, in my setting, you know, children's ministry is in a black hole. It's not once you go down that hallway, you're never coming out. You know, you're, you're going to be allowed to. We'll let you once a couple times a year. Um, but where you see a need, it, it's not as though, well, gosh, I'll wait until the thing comes along that I really want. And, and, and Jesus instructs us in Luke chapter 6, he says, even, even fallen, lost, wicked people know how to do that. But there's something different about us. And, and the difference is Jesus. The difference is the one who gave everything for us. So, money, time, talents that he's also given to us in addition to his own life and that he would simply ask us to use for him to take up for him and to follow i want to give you last verse in closing and it's from second corinthians you don't have to turn there but just listen to paul's words to the church because this is it this is the fuel this is the absolute fuel and, and Paul is talking here in this context about people who were very poor, who were begging to be a part of giving their money so that other believers could have their needs met. And they were very poor. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, the world has no clue about that. Extreme poverty and abundance of joy have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And, and then he goes on to say, so if, if that seems so countercultural, so extreme, Paul tells us why they could do this. And he does that in verse 9. Gospel fuel for gift giving. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is not a prosperity passage. That is a passage that unloads on us the treasure of Christ in us. So that we would see in him all of our wealth and all of our sufficiency. And then we would say, use me. Use me however you want. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus and thank you for him crucified and thank you for him alive and thank you for him living in us and thank you for him, our treasure. Lord, I do not presume on every particular person that's here tonight exactly what you're calling them to do, but I simply ask that you would call them, that you would give them a clear sense clear path, a clear conviction tonight of what areas they need to steward their life in for your sake, Jesus. Amen.